everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelins and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We have with us tonight Randy Walker, a sports marketing communications and media specialist and the manager par- partner of New Chapter Media, based in New York City. Randy is most noted for his work in the tennis industry, highlighted by a 12-year stint in the marketing and communications division of the USTA that featured work on 13 U.S. Open championships, 22 U.S. Davis Cup ties, and three Olympic Games. SportsIllustrated.com went as far to label Randy as the Roger Federer of tennis publicity. We are privileged to have him on with us tonight. Please welcome to the pod, Randy Walker. Randy, thank you for taking time and sharing some of the most incredible experiences you've had in the tennis world. Well, Dave, thanks so much for having me, and thanks for what you're doing for tennis. I think uh, really how people are going to grow this sport in the United States and around the world is uh, doing things like podcasting and blogging and tweeting and you know representing themselves at tournaments and so forth. So the work that you're doing with your podcast is really doing a lot to uh, you know promote and uh, develop the growth of tennis in the United States. So kudos to you. I appreciate the kind words. And you know the people in the tennis world, man. We all love the sport and anything we can do to push and promote it, we're going to do it. So we see the great work in your background. And eventually, we'll, po- we'll post this up to the YouTube channel. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But this is obviously a very unique time, not only in your life, but everybody's lives. Um, how, what have you been doing to stay busy right now? Well, I mean, I'm actually down in Vero Beach, Florida, which is where I also live in addition to New York City. So, uh, you know, I've been uh, doing a lot of, uh, you know, writing and publishing work with New Chapter uh, Media. We're a premier book publisher of tennis books and published, you know, books like right uh, coming book, uh, uh, Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited by Pete, uh, by Steve Flink, which is uh, looking back on a great career of uh, Pete Sampras. And, um, you know, we've also been very busy doing stuff with the Morty Fish Children's Foundation, which is one of my clients. And uh, we are raising money for children in Indian River County, Florida, and, uh, you know, planning for our uh, upcoming Marty Fish Children's Foundation Tennis Championships. So uh, still a lot of work to do. You just got to make the best of it. It's not the greatest, uh, um, you know, opportunity to uh, get a lot of work done, but you just have to make the best of it with the time, uh, time that you have. So, uh, uh, so Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and thanks for touching on those topics, because we're going to dive a little deeper in all those topics that you just mentioned. So a lot of people obviously know you for your incredible work in the, in the media industry and, the, and all the stuff that you do at New Chapter Media and your prior experiences. But, you know, you were quite a tennis player. I mean, you played at the University of Georgia. And for people that know college tennis, Georgia is, has been a powerhouse. So obviously, you had some talent. How did you get started in the sport, and, and how did you do during your junior career to get recruited to such a powerhouse like that? Well, I'm actually the greatest player in the history of the University of Georgia men's tennis team to never win a match. I was actually 0-7. I was the Rudy, you know, the, 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 the movie about Notre Dame football player Rudy Rudiger. I was the Rudy of Georgia tennis. Um, I was 0-7. There's only been one other player in the history of the University of Georgia who's played and never won a match. And that person's name is Greg McGarity, who just happens to be the athletic director for the University of Georgia. He was 0-1. I was 0-7. So I think I'm worse than him because I lost more matches. So I'm very proud that I'm the uh, all-time losingest player uh, from the University of Georgia. And I'm here in Vero Beach, Florida at the Boulevard Tennis Club. This is my uh, 
condo right next to the Boulevard Tennis Club in Vero Beach, Florida. And a member of this club happens to be Michael Pernforce. Yes. The all-time greatest Bulldog. So here at the club here, we have the all-time losingest and the all-time greatest uh, Georgia Bulldog here in Gator Country in, in Vero Beach, Florida. <laughs> I, you but know. I will say, I mean, really, uh, I was so privileged to be a part of the University of Georgia program. I, I went there with no intention of playing on the tennis team. I really wanted to go there more because it's a communication school. I grew up in New Canaan, Connecticut. I played number five on my high school team. Uh, and uh, I played uh, uh, some hit and giggle matches with a gentleman named Bob Troop in New Canaan, Connecticut, who uh, was friends with Dan McGill, who was the legendary coach of the University of Georgia. They uh, 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 crossed paths at University of Georgia for a little bit and also in the Marines in World War II. And uh, Bob Troop put me in touch with Dan McGill. I walked into the office on the campus the first day, uh, first week at the University of Georgia. I didn't know a soul. Went into Coach McGill's office, asked him if there was a JV team because here it was the fall of 1987. Georgia was number one in the country. They had just won the NCAA championships the previous spring. They had the greatest recruiting class, you know, perhaps in the history of college tennis with Al Parker, Chris Garner, and Francisco Montana, three of the top five juniors in the country. And Al Parker was the greatest junior, you know, in the history of USTA tennis. They were freshmen. We had a, a full team coming back from the NCAA championship team. You know, how the heck was a guy that couldn't even, you know, barely play singles for New Canaan High School in New Canaan, Connecticut, make the team? Uh, so I asked Coach Miguel, well, do you need a manager? And he goes, well, you know, we certainly could use a manager. So uh, I, I did, you know, win the walk-on tournament, but there were, you know, 13, 14 players on the team. But I was lucky enough. The only reason they kept me around was because I volunteered to be the manager. So I picked up the balls. I drove the van. I picked up the lunches for the players. Uh, there was uh, uh, one funny thing where every time somebody would hit an, uh, uh, an overhead over the fence at, uh, that, uh, at Henry Field Stadium at the University of Georgia, Dan McGill would always bellow out, Randy Walker, ball over. You know, that was like one of my, my duties. But uh, that freshman year at Georgia, uh, the team was riddled with injuries. Uh, pretty much every starter was uh, out with some sort of an injury. So Coach McGill called me in his office and he said, you know, our team is so desperate, we may even have to put you in the lineup if things get any worse. So I signed all the papers to be, you know, officially eligible for the team. I didn't play a match. But then the next year, uh, Dan McGill uh, had retired and Manuel Diaz took over as the head coach, Manny, Manny is still the coach at University of Georgia now. Um, but the team shrunk from being about 13 and 14 to being uh, seven, uh, eight, nine players. So I went from being, you know, 13, 14 to being number eight on the team. And in those years in college tennis, the format was different where you had six singles first, then you played three doubles afterwards. So it was nine matches and a team could clinch the match in singles so because there were so many injuries the year before if if uh if georgia had clinched the match in singles uh manny was always a little bit worried about injuries and so forth so you know it didn't really matter the doubles they were you know dead rubber so to speak so manny would put me in with the other walk-on scott lewis 
he would put us in at number three double. So that was a big cushion. That was, I was very lucky that I was able to get into these quote unquote, um, you know, dead rubber matches. Uh, but he, but Manny was cocky, so cocky against Virginia Tech my sophomore year that he actually started me at number six singles. And uh, of course I was the only one that lost. So, <laughs> but I was there for two, I was there for two years. I was over seven after my sophomore year, I realized, uh, you know, I, I had my chance to play. This was a great opportunity. I wasn't going to get as many opportunities in my junior years. I was going to get my sophomore year. So I decided, you know, I really needed to get more media experience and journalism experience. So I uh, left the team and I joined the Red and Black, which was the student newspaper for the University of Georgia. And I covered the men's tennis team for, for two years after that. So that was a big part in me, you know, gaining media experience and, you know, helping me launch me into the media career that I have in tennis today. Oh, thanks for sharing all that. And, and look, I don't care if you didn't win a match at Georgia. You had an incredible two years experience on that team. Not many people can say that. And you mentioned Michael Pernforth. I know he was a little bit um, prior to you coming. He won back-to-back NCAA titles in 84 and 85. And he followed that up, I believe, on his rookie season on tour by making the finals of the French Open the following year in 1986. And then I believe, and you know I'm from the suburbs of Chicago, there's a guy that was a Chicago legend, and he's, he's older than me. I do not know him personally, but he was, a, he was a legend. He won state all four years in a row. Your teammate, Mike Morrison from Deerfield High School. Mike's father was a coach at Deerfield for a very, very long time. That family is, a, 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 like I said, it's a legendary family in Chicago. Yeah, Mike Morrison, Mo, as we all called him, uh, was a was a a great great Georgia player. He uh, was on the 1987 national championship team. You know, played anywhere from four to six on the team, and kind of anchored some of those big wins. And what a tremendous guy! I have so many great memories of of Mo at practices and band rides. You know, driving around the Southeastern Conference, and uh, now he's a very successful paddle tennis player and entrepreneur and he has uh, his own uh, clothing line I think I believe it's called machete tennis but uh, you know if you play platform tennis you should definitely uh, google Mike Morrison Mo Morrison and check out all this apparel and and uh, all this all the offerings that he has in platform tennis so uh, Mo's good person and uh, happy to be still connected with him on Facebook and we uh, you know go back and forth a bit you know with great memories of the Georgia tennis Oh, that's great. So you kind of did the transition for me in an easy way. Um, so I appreciate that. You played tennis for two years. The, your junior and senior year, you start writing for the student uh, newspaper, is what that is. And then your career starts to go towards that direction of graduation. What were some of your first couple of jobs? And then we'll, uh, we'll obviously lead into some of your, the coolest experiences ever at the USDA. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as being a student, uh, you know, you want to gain as much experience as possible. I mean, certainly I was, you know, writing articles for the paper and just meeting people. And, uh, you know, I saved up some money and bought one of those old Tandy uh, computers to send stories to newspapers. And, you know, I would call uh, at the NCAA tournament, I'd call the, the Daily Northwestern and uh, say, hey, would you like to do some stories on a Northwestern tennis player named Todd Martin, who's in the uh, NCAA tournament? And, you know, they would send stories to me. Sometimes they'd pay me, sometimes uh, they wouldn't, but I would just try to get clips 
just get clips and experience and meet people. And, uh, you know, one of the persons that I met in the press box at uh, some of the college tennis tournaments in the NCAAs was a guy named Joe Lynch, who was the uh, a media director for the Intercollegiate Tennis Association, the ITA. And uh, Joe Lynch recommended that I uh, uh, potentially work in the press box at the U.S. Open as, uh, you know, just like a, 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 you know, worker making copies, whatever. And, you know, through a bunch of, uh, you know, phone calls and uh, uh, faxes back in the day, you know, I was able to uh, connect with the USTA, Bruce Levy with the USTA, who hired me in the press box uh, uh, for the U.S. Open in 1992. And you just meet people. I mean, that's just the main thing. It's just getting a bunch of experiences, getting bunches of clips. I also worked as a volunteer person in the, in the media room at the Volvo International in New Haven, Connecticut. No pay, you know, working 12 hours a day in the press room. But you're just in that environment and you're meeting people. And it's not necessarily that you're going to get a job you know, right there, you know, right there and there, but just meeting people and forging relationships and then doors, you know, open. So I worked at uh, the 1992 U.S. Open. Uh, there I met the new director of communications, a woman named Paige Crossland, who, you know, really liked me. And then six months later, I'm working, uh, you know, full-time for the USTA. So that's kind of where, you know, all that happened. But all the people that I met through college tennis and through, you know, Georgia and the press rooms and so forth, you know, that really, uh, you know, led to me getting a full-time job at the USTA, which I was there for, you know, from 1993 until 2005. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, we don't have enough days, weeks, or months to talk about all your awesome experiences here, but I do want to talk a, a few of them. I mean, you were the press officer for the U.S. Davis Cup team from 1997 through 2005. Um, I mean, you worked... In the 1996, the 2000, 2004 U.S. Uh, US Olympic tennis teams, 96, Andre won gold. Lindsey Davenport, I think, also won gold. Um, then you had the Williams sisters. Um, they won their medals later on. You covered <laughs> – you had good timing here. I mean, you covered the greatest generation of U.S. tennis players in history. Talk about some of your favorite experiences doing that. Well, I mean, I think 96 Olympics was a big one for me. I mean, that was really my big first, uh, you know, opportunity to work on the, you know, international team. You know, obviously everybody worked in the press room at the U.S. Open, but, you know, for me to kind of own a project with Olympic tennis and so forth. And uh, I remember that first press conference um, there in Atlanta and uh, the team was, uh, you know, it was Andre Agassi, Mal Washington, Pete Sampras was injured, pulled out. You know, Billie Jean King was the women's captain. And uh, Lindsay, Monica Salas, Mary Jo Fernandez, Gigi Fernandez, we had this big press conference. Everybody got asked to press uh, a question in that first press conference, except Lindsay Davenport. Nobody asked Lindsay Davenport a question in that first press conference. She quietly goes through the draw. She uh, beats Mary Jo Fernandez in the semifinals, and then she's playing in the gold medal match. Juan Antonio Samaranch, the head of the International Olympic Committee, comes to the tennis event. You know, he's thinking he's going to be uh, putting the gold medal around Rancho Sanchez Vicario's match. She's the heavy favorite to play Lindsay. Lindsay goes out there, beats a Rancho. That was really her coming out party, her first, you know, big win in her eventual Hall of Fame career. And, uh, you know, we did all the media tours, you know, MSNBC, CNN, you know, Sports Center, all in downtown Atlanta. And I remember, I think it was CBS Evening News, we had a, a hit on the top of a building. And uh, we had to go through a metal detector 
and Lindsay uh, was wearing, you know, jean shorts and her, you know, USA sweat top, and she had to go through the metal detector, and then beep, 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 she lets off the metal detector, and then the security guard goes, I'm sorry, ma'am, you have to empty your pocket of any metal objects, and Lindsay reaches into her front pocket and pulls out this glittery gold metal, puts it into that little, you know, petri disc on the side of the, uh, the, uh, the, the monitor there, and then the security guard just goes, whoa, look at that. <laughs> that was kind of a fun uh, memory. And obviously working with the Williams sisters and Billie Jean in Sydney was great. And then 2004 with uh, you know Patrick McEnroe and Marty Fish, of course, got to the, uh, the finals, lost a heartbreaker final to Nicholas Massu. So that was great. I love Olympic tennis. I love Davis Cup. I mean, those are my uh, tremendous uh, – memories there and like you said we could probably have about an hour and a half podcast just with all of that but uh those were near and dear memories and uh and those are events that uh i still love today personal story i don't know if you were there but an early high school graduation present for me 1992 u.s davis cup semis were played in minneapolis i think it was at the target center that was just yes. recently opened we drove up there from Chicago, and that was the dream team. Currier and Agassi playing Sampras, uh, playing singles, and Sampras and McEnroe playing doubles. They played Sweden. Stefan Edberg was on that team, and the U.S. won, and it was so cool. They actually won the U.S. Davis Cup at the time. I think they beat, they beat Switzerland in the finals, I think like in Fort Worth or something. The next yeah, round, Fort Worth final. And yeah, no, I, I was so privileged to be able to work with, uh, you know, Pete and Andre and uh and jim and you know john was of course the captain of the davis cup team in 2000 amazing stories there going to zimbabwe and yeah. spain and you know working with john there's never a dull moment with john um you know and still do work today with jim courier with his champion series tennis which was known as the outback champion series power share series and vesco series you know the uh the champions tour so i still do some consulting with jim and uh you know a lot of those legends uh you know play on those tour events around the world so i do some consulting with them so that's uh you know again relationships that you create and they last so long and you know they just open up opportunities for you so so cool so so cool so let's kind of get um closer to being what you're doing today obviously you've been a part of new chapter uh media for a while new chapter media just for the listeners, a background, it's a full-service boutique marketing agency with a specialty in sports. The company was founded in 1987 as really a book publishing company, um, New Chapter Press, which morphed into a sales marketing and publishing company in 2006 when you became managing partner of the firm. Um, and that really became New Chapter Media, which offers marketing, publicity, sales, event services, in addition to being a well-established publishing house. You not only have authored several books, but you've also published several books. You've mentioned Steve Flink earlier. I've had Steve on the podcast, as, you're, as, as you know. Um, he was great. And we, you know, Steve's had a couple books. I'm looking at writing one right now on the desk. You probably have it behind you. The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, just to name one. There's one that's coming out right now uh, with Pete Sampras. I think it's called Greatness Revisited. And uh, he talked a little bit about that book on my pod and how Pete was so good and he just may have gotten lost on how good he really was because you have three other guys right now that are just off this planet uh, at their level. So um, give us a little, uh, you know, background on, on your time there, some of the books you've, you've authored and some of the books you've published. 
Yeah, basically it was uh, run by my late father uh, back in the day. And, uh, you know, uh, he would basically be running the backlist for the, uh, uh, you know, for the books uh, there and not really publishing any new books. But at the Heineken Red Star Cafe at the U.S. Open back in 2006, I believe it was, um, I was having a, a Heineken with Renee Stauffer, who was a leading Swiss journalist who I'd met at uh, the Davis Cup uh, tie in, in Basel, Switzerland in 2001. And uh, he said, hey, Randy, you know, I have the, wrote, wrote this book about Roger Federer that I'm looking at the English language publisher for. Uh, you know, what do you think? You know, so I talked to my dad. I said, hey, can we, can we publish this? He says, we can publish this, you know, but it's got to be entirely on you. You've got to finance it. You've got to oversee it. I'll give you the tools to do it, but it's all on you. You know, so I took a dive and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, financed it and, and oversaw the whole operation. And it was a, an amazing success. We ran out of our, we sold out of our first print run in uh, 10 days at, at Wimbledon in 2007. And that was kind of where, uh, you know, things took off. And, and then the press room at Wimbledon, you know, Bud Collins comes up to me. And he's like, you know, so uh, you're a book publisher, huh? You know, I'd really like someone to take over the publishing of my, you know, Bud Collins history of tennis. So, you know, I ended up publishing uh, uh, three editions of uh, Bud's Encyclopedia of Tennis called the Bud Collins History of Tennis. And then uh, I was having a, a birthday dinner with Bud and, uh, and he gets uh, Rod Laver on the phone and says, uh, hey, why don't we republish uh, the book that uh, Bud uh, wrote with uh, Rod in uh, 1969 about his 1969 Grand Slam called The Education of a Tennis Player. So we published that book. And uh, I'll tell you, the easiest way to get a book deal is when you own and run the company. So that's how I got my book on this day in tennis history published, you know, because I cut a deal with myself. So, uh, you know, that started with, uh, you know, my work at the USTA and in documenting on this day in U.S. Open history, which is still used today. And the... Uh, you know, on the scoreboards and in all the programs and so forth. I kind of say like now with Twitter and social media, and especially in this pandemic era, you know, everybody's been, you know, posting on this day in tennis history, uh, anecdotes and so forth. It's, it's probably the most referenced book in tennis history by now between all the, you know, tweets and uh, postings about, uh, you know, anniversaries of tennis and so forth. But, uh, but we're, you know, the, the world's leading uh, book publisher in tennis, just because I love tennis and I know how to promote tennis and uh, you know and uh, that's a joy of mine so I take a lot of pleasure in, uh, in in working with these authors and getting these stories I mean everybody has a story and I'm fascinated by stories of, of uh, you know tales from the tennis tour and so forth I also published Cliff Ritchie's book Acing Depression uh, which talks about his uh, life uh, on the tour and him dealing with mental illness and you know very inspiring books so uh, um, so it's a real joy and it keeps me uh, in the game and you know i also do other you know consulting with tennis projects marty fish children's foundation um uh the power share series the invesco series with jim courier etc you know you asked me one of the things i've been doing you know during the hiatus i was able to put the, together um world team tennis with the greenbrier resort in west virginia i was the one that brokered those two two uh, entities together uh, for the World Team Tennis season in 2020 to be played at the Greenbrier, which has uh, been an amazing success. So, uh, uh, you know, any, any kind of thing that I can do in, in marketing, social media, marketing, press releasing, uh, running tournaments and so forth, I get so much satisfaction out of running uh, the Marty Fish Children's Foundation Tennis Championships alongside Marty's father, Tom Fish, who's the co-tournament director 
with me. That's a $15,000 ITF uh, futures event, which I get so much satisfaction out of it. It raises money for at-risk kids in Indian River County, which, uh, you know, we raise a lot of money, you know, at, uh, you know, for, for kids with that event. And you just get so much satisfaction seeing these players just starting to crack into the top uh, 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 parts of pro tennis. We had Dennis Shapovalov at our tournament a couple of years ago and uh, Francis TFO, et cetera. So it's really super fun to see these kids play in our tournament and then watch them, uh, you know, play in the U.S. Open and Davis Cup and so forth in years to come. So, uh, um, you know, in some ways I get almost more satisfaction with that than, you know, you know, working at, uh, you know, a U.S. Open or a Davis Cup, et cetera. Yeah, and, and you could go to that, uh, the Marty Fish Foundation website um, to learn more information about the foundation and the event. Just um, the mission statement for the Marty Fish Foundation is to provide children the opportunities to participate in safe and impactful fitness, nutritional, and enrichment programs, empower, empowering them to live healthy lives. So again, they've had an event uh, in Vero Beach, I think since 1995. Um, now it's being associated with the Marty Fish Foundation. Randy has the hat on right now. Shout out Marty Fish off the tennis court. Just won a big time golf celebrity tournament, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And we all know how good a golfer he is. And he had not won that tournament previously, but he, he uh, recently did. So shout out. Yeah, we Marty also do that. a golf fundraiser every January where, uh, you know, you can come down and, uh, you know, play a little with Marty at the prestigious Windsor Club which is where Marty's father, Tom, is the head tennis pro. And Yvonne Lendl is a member there, too. He's quite a golfer as well. Paul McGinley, who uh, was a former Ryder Cup captain for Ireland, he's a member there. And we had Luke Donald there and some other celebrities. So every January, before Marty plays in uh, a celebrity golf event in Orlando, the um, uh, Diamond Resorts International, Marty comes in a few days earlier and plays that uh, charity event that we have in, in uh at Windsor. So, uh, you know, if you're listening and you want to uh, have an amazing golf experience that helps kids uh, in Indian River County, you can sign up for that as well. And our tournament in Vero Beach is traditionally held every May, you know, with the pandemic, we got postponed, but uh, we're going to be held later in the fall. So uh, we're happy that we're getting another crack at it. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. Uh, we, we can talk for hours. And if you don't mind, I, I would love to have you back on because you have so much to offer. So, um, Hope you'll uh, take me up on that offer. But before we Absolutely. end, before we end, you know, through your career, you've seen really go from print media to obviously social media. And I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that, how you transition from more print media. You obviously do both. Um, your views on social media, how you use it to your advantage and, and maybe certain things that you don't really like about social media. Well, I think that, uh, you know, when I was uh, in the press room with USTA, you know, there was just a big room of American tennis writers and, and every newspaper, all, all the big newspapers had a designated beat tennis writer uh, for their newspaper and they would have notes columns twice a week. There'd be an article about tennis every day of the week or, or once at least once a week in all the major newspapers uh, in the United States. And that started to shrink about the time that I you know, left the USTA, and that's really where then tennis blogs started, where people were writing blogs and, you know, uh, you know, whatever, randystennisnews.com or, you know, wherever, everybody would start, you know, creating their own, you know, tennis-specific websites. You know, I created two tennis websites around that time, 
you know, worldtennismagazine.com and tennisgrandstand.com, which I still uh, run. And uh, so, so tennis writing and tennis, you know, kind of publicity and tennis media kind of went from the newspaper to the blog. And then, uh, then I think it started to go more to social media where people would have their own, you know, social media profiles and so forth. And I think also podcasting is really getting big now where you're seeing a lot more podcasts out there. So, um, you know, the podcast is kind of the old tennis column for the newspaper or, you know, the, 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 the tennis blog site. So that's kind of how tennis media has, uh, has transitioned. Um, you know, I'm also a big golf fan. Um, and I remembered Paul Azinger, who's a former PGA uh, champion and, uh, you know, now prominent golf uh, commentator. He once described, uh, you know, Twitter as a sewer, you know, just because there's just, there's a lot of negativity on, on Twitter and there's a lot of anonymous people and trolls and, you know, you have uh, uh, people, you know, uh, gamblers, you know, writing awful notes to players and, you know, and so forth. So I don't really see it as a sewer. I see it kind of as a river that sometimes can be polluted, but sometimes it can be really beautiful. Um, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, you know, these are just tremendous uh, ways to maintain relationships. You know, as I said earlier in the podcast, it's, it's really all about maintaining relationships and creating relationships. I mean, you and I met on Twitter and we started following each other and Hey, look at this. Now we're, you know, we're friends and I'm on your podcast and, uh, um, you know, we have started a relationship through Twitter. I've um, uh, met authors that have published their books through, through Twitter and through social media. You know, you, you're able to promote your books, to promote your products on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram and so forth. So I see it as mostly positive you know, the, the negative that you sometimes have to deal with, you just kind of have to kind of brush that, uh, you know, brush that aside. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I love the interaction with, uh, with Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram and, uh, and Twitter at, at Tennis Publisher, Randolph Walker on, um, on Facebook, you know, at World Tennis Mag, at Tennis GC, um, or GS. Uh, you know, I got a bunch of different... Uh, uh, you know, Twitter profiles based on the books that I published and so forth. So, uh, you know, I encourage you to, uh, to dive in deep in social media and just, uh, um, you know, shy away from the negativity. Great, great advice. And yeah, definitely go follow Randy because it's he's a, he's a fun follow and you learn a lot about uh, what he's done. And, and again, you'll, you'll hear his love for the sport of tennis. And that's really the bottom line. Shameless plugs for books and clients. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Randy, thank you so much. This is so fun. And again, I I mean, we could talk for hours. I'd love to have you back on again. Then we can dive into, you know, maybe more uh, certain specific things. If you're willing to do that, that'd be great. Um, With that being said, Best of luck. You're, you're doing great work. I love following you and I love reading the books. And I know you got the, like we said, the Pete Sampras book is by Steve Flink is coming out right about now. And uh, hey, stay safe, stay healthy, friends, family, tennis players. And we'll get through this. It's just going to take some time. We'll get through with this. Randy, thank you so much. for. Well, well thank you for you do, Dave. I mean, you're really doing a great job, uh, you know, with your podcast and getting the word out and interviewing, you know, voices in tennis that deserve to be heard with positive and inspiring stories that, you know, aren't necessarily going to be on the front page of the New York Times or, or um, uh, you know, USA Today or the Washington Post. So keep doing what you're doing and keep interviewing all those people from around the country that uh, share the love of this, uh, 
game of tennis that we love so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate it so much, Randy. Have a great rest of the day, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to being on the court soon. We'll see. That's great, Dave. Take care. Thanks again for having me. Thank you.